Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Podcast with Dr. K and Lindsay, where we aim to uncover the myths of modern healthcare to help families discover cost transparency, improved access, and innovation. Dr. John Kaiser is a practicing OBGYN and the president of Salser Health. And Lindsay Heiner is a healthcare advocate and a mother of four kids. Now, let's talk healthcare. Well, it's great to see you again. Good to see you, Dr. Kaiser. It is Movember. It is. And so this is, a, I think, a, a great time to have a very timely conversation about uh, the topic we're going to discuss today. And uh, I'm glad to see you're still there and kicking and doing well. <laughs> well, the big question is, are you going to be growing a mustache this month? Well, you know, I had one for 20 years and I am kind of feeling lost without it, but I don't think I will. <laughs> okay. I think I'll skip that this year. But it's all about highlighting men's health. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very true. And speaking of that, today we have uh, Dr. Michael Morris with us, uh, who is a urologist in the community. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. And uh, maybe we'll start with you just giving a little your background, and uh, then we'll go into some topics that I think would be interested are interesting for our patients that use. Sure. So I grew up in Wyoming and went to the Air Force Academy uh, for my undergraduate, went on to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and then did my urology training in San Antonio, Texas, and served in the Air Force for several years before I had the opportunity to return to the Mountain West where home was and discovered a great opportunity here in the Treasure Valley. Been here for the past six and a half years. My my family and I love it here and it's been a been a wonderful experience for us. Great. And uh, you're a welcome addition to the medical community. So we thank you for coming. Thank you. It's great. It's been great to be here. So uh, did you have any thoughts or any questions that you wanted to kind of start? Yeah, I think what we, we we really just want to highlight men's health issues. So in your practice, in urology, what are some of the common concerns or health topics dealing with men in your practice? Sure. So one of the things that really drew me to urology when I was in my early, early training was the wide variety of symptoms that we get to address. And many of these uh, uh conditions are very sensitive topics. We take care of men with cancer. We take care of men with urinary symptoms that can be embarrassing to talk about. We talk about sexual dysfunction and a a wide variety of things. The most common things I see men for would be urinary complaints, primarily related to enlargement of the prostate or bladder dysfunction. But we also see large numbers of men for prostate cancer, erectile dysfunction as well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So um, how do you kind of get to the point where you can try to make the patient feel a little more at ease about talking about some of these things and, and getting and what, what roadblocks have you found to getting patients in to try to get care early? Sure. Well, most of the most of the patients that come to see us are referred by their primary care doctors. And so usually there's they, that first step has been taken. You know, they've been able to discuss their their urinary issues with their with their family doctor or their internist. So that first step has already been taken, but I still find them hesitant at times to, you know, walk in the urologist store and and you know open those conversations further. Uh, I think that most urologists, including myself, are so comfortable with dealing with these issues because we've been doing it on a day in and day out basis for 20 years or so. It's really easy for us to have these conversations. I think that puts patients at ease. Um, 
knowing that they're talking to a specialist who really has decided to focus their, their career on treating these conditions. So that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our nursing staff, similarly, are, and our, all of our clinic staff are very well-versed in dealing with these, with these sensitive topics. So that makes it a lot easier for, for men, I think, once they get there. Yeah, that's great. So let's start with uh, one of the conditions you mentioned, uh, prostate cancer. Just kind of take us through, you know, the screening process, once it's diagnosed, what kind of treatments and, and follow up and all that. So if you could just kind of give us a, an overview of prostate cancer. Sure. So prostate cancer, as you know, is a, is a huge topic. And prostate cancer screening has been somewhat of a controversial topic in the last 10 to 15 years as well. Uh, the main screening test that is done for prostate cancer is a blood test that's called a PSA, which stands for prostate-specific antigen. And that is a, is a protein that is produced by both normal prostate cells, but also uh, by prostate cancer cells. The reason that, uh, one of the many reasons that prostate cancer screening has been controversial is that PSA, the blood test, is not specific for cancer. So you can have an abnormal blood test, and that doesn't mean you have cancer. Um, The majority of men that do come to see me have an elevated or high PSA, and that's why their primary care doctors are referring them to us. When I see someone with an elevated PSA, I'll have a long discussion with them about what this might mean. We'll do a prostate exam, which means an exam with a finger to see if there's anything that feels abnormal on the prostate. We'll talk about their family history. Do they have any siblings or their father or anyone else who might have had prostate cancer? And look at a number of other factors that could increase their risk. Then we typically discuss possibly doing more testing. That could be another PSA test. It could be something as simple as that. There are several new tests that have come out in the last 10 years that help us to stratify men into a higher or lower risk group. There are urine tests that we can do. There are uh, possibly MRIs. And then once we've put all that information together, we talk about possibly doing a biopsy on the prostate gland if it's indicated. And that's really the only way we can tell if someone has cancer or not. I do not biopsy everyone that comes to my office with an elevated PSA. We look at all these other factors that I talked about, and then we can make a decision as to whether or not to to do the biopsy. Mm, So what's the age that you would start to be concerned about your prostate and potentially do a PSA? That's a great question. So for most men, you would start considering to do a PSA around age 50 or 55. Okay. There are different guidelines from different organizations, whether it be the American Urologic Association, the American Cancer Society, uh, and some other organizations that look at these things. And the, the age it, you know, recommendations vary from one group to the other. Some things I think that are important to rec- remember excuse me, are that prostate cancer is very rare in men under the age of 40, so we don't usually recommend screening those men. If a man has a family history, particularly in a brother or a father or maybe an uncle, then screening around the age of 40 is, is appropriate. If they have no family history or other risk factors, you know, between the ages of 50 and 70 are, is, a, is a range that is acceptable. So can, can prostate cancer be deadly? 
yes, prostate cancer can be deadly. Yeah. How, how often is it that that's the case? So that's another great question. One of the other controversies about prostate cancer screening is that we're screening for a disease that's very common. So, you know, the numbers vary somewhat, but one out of every nine men might be diagnosed with prostate cancer in his life. And then some numbers are even, some studies says even more than that. But only about one out of every 40 men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer will actually die of the disease. So it's a very common disease. And then when we screen for it, we're likely to find it. But most men who have it don't die from it. Most men who have it die from something else at some point. Um, but with all that being said, there are cases of prostate cancer that can be more aggressive and can be life-threatening. And that's why I think it's important to discuss screening with men, uh, to look at their risk factors. And then make an educated decision as to whether you, we should screen, and if so, how we go about that. And then when the you say you do diagnose prostate cancer, then doesn't it also come to a decision point on is this an operative case, or should should this be something we're worried about, or is this one of these slow ones that you want to watch? You know, all those kind of factors. Exactly. So when I diagnose a man with prostate cancer, we are going to have a long discussion about what his uh, risk stratification is. And so we try to classify prostate cancers into a low, intermediate, and high risk groups. And we base that on their biopsy results, their PSA, the blood test I mentioned earlier, and also on what their prostate exam revealed, if there were any abnormal lumps or bumps on their exam. So if a man falls into the low risk group, and we even have a very low risk group within that, they have several options. And one of the options that many men in that group choose is something called active surveillance. So we have found that many of those men have cancers that may never impact their, their life. And so it is safe in many of those cases to follow them closely without having to do surgery or other treatment. We still keep a very close eye on them and monitor them every six to six months, uh, but they can go without having to have additional treatment and do very well for many years. And many of them never need treatment. Yeah. Does the risk factors that you talked about, like family history, change your recommendations, even if they fall into the lower risk category or not really? Um, that's a great question. I, I think that would be on a case by case basis. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if someone has a low risk disease and, and they have had a few brothers, yeah. let's say they've had it, um, I still may not push them towards treatment, you know, uh, depending on their, you know, specific circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. If they fall into that intermediate risk or that high risk group, uh, they are more likely to have treatment recommended. Okay. But there are cases um, where we like to observe men with those higher risk features as well, depending on their other health uh, uh, factors and what they're, you know, looking at their age as well. Is there anything um, that patients can do preventatively to reduce their risk of, of prostate cancer? So uh, there have been a number of uh, things as far as diet uh, and otherwise that have been looked at to reduce a person's risk of developing prostate cancer. 
there was a study about uh, 10 to 15 years ago where they were looking at vitamin E and selenium uh, uh, supplementation to see if it might decrease the risk, the risk of developing prostate cancer. And what they unfortunately found was it actually increased the risk of developing prostate cancer. Unintended consequences, right? <laughs> so, so there's no uh, supplement yeah. or specific uh, treatment that has been, has been shown to definitively reduce a person's risk of prostate cancer. With all that being said, I think that there are certain things that people can do. And it, it goes back to just living healthily. I think that uh, men that eat uh, healthily with uh, less red meat and less high fat food and more uh, raw fruits and vegetables have been shown to have a lower instance, although that may not be definitive. There's benefits there. I think men that are exercise routinely and, 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 and are active are less likely to get prostate cancer. Uh, there is some data that shows that men that are overweight may not be at higher risk for getting prostate cancer, but if they do get prostate cancer, it is sometimes more aggressive. So there's a number of things like that, that, that men can do to reduce their risk. But really they just need to keep on their radar when they get to that age of 50, knowing that they need to have a screening. So I think they need to have that discussion with their, with their primary care doctor or with a urologist. And the reason I say that is that not every 50 year old is the same. So if someone is 50 Mm -hmm. and they have, you know, several other medical issues, uh, maybe prostate cancer screening is not the best thing for them. That's usually not the case at 50 in all honesty, but if someone's healthy and they are 50 years old, I think it's certainly worth considering at least checking a PSA to see what their numbers are, because you you could find something that you were very surprised by. And what could a patient expect? Is there any sort of recovery from the the screening or is this pretty straightforward? And so the screening is just a simple blood test. And then I do recommend that they consider having a prostate exam as well. And then once, um, I guess uh, let's talk about what happens when there is prostate cancer and there and they get to the point where it's surgically necessary to do something. Well, what, or maybe, or maybe yeah. even just kind of broader, what are the options when yeah. someone is diagnosed with prostate cancer? Sure. So uh, as I mentioned before, active surveillance with men who have low-risk prostate cancer is an option. And then there are other two main options are going to be either surgery or radiation therapy. And radiation therapy comes in two forms. It's either placement of uh, radioactive seeds into the prostate or external beam radiation therapy. And that may be done with or without hormone therapy as well. So most surgery is performed with robotic surgery now. And uh, this has been shown to benefit men with the lower instance of uh, bleeding at the time of surgery, a quicker recovery and return to normal activity. Um, and it has helped with prevention of some of the you know, side effects of surgery, which can, can you know, be significant and need to be considered when you make decisions. Uh, for men that don't want surgery or perhaps surgery is not the best thing for them, radiation therapy tends to be fairly well tolerated as well. Also with relatively, you know, minimal risks in, in, in the, in the grand scheme. What is that like the radiation therapy? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You're putting 
little, tell me the details. I mean, it sounds very Star Wars. Sure. So, well, (laughs) so the, the radiation uh, therapy is delivered by a a radiation oncologist. So a, a doctor who has, who has trained to do this. And most of the time they get external beam radiation therapy where they go for an appointment at a center and they go typically five days a week for a quick appointment where they receive a radiation treatment, much like they do with other, other cancers. The duration of the therapy is typically about nine weeks. Uh, People go on about their normal lives typically while they're receiving radiation. They, uh, you know, continue to work most of the time. And, and typically do very well. They can have some bothersome urinary symptoms and sometimes some bothersome bowel symptoms, uh, you know, burning with urination, frequency and urgency of urination. Uh, similarly with their bowels, while, that, while they're going through treatment, typically many people will complain of some fatigue while they're going through, but most people tolerate it well. Uh, and so that's, that's uh, typical. Yeah, there are some patients that receive the the the, the seed placement, but that's a, a smaller percentage of the overall patients. Would that be through an oncologist as well? That was that's decided with the radiation oncologist okay. as to whether or not they do that or huh. not. When would uh, someone decide to go more towards the radiation treatment uh, versus the surgical treatment, or is there a blending process? It, it a lot of it is driven by patient preference, mm-hmm. and when I when I discuss this with patients, I try to really outline the advantages and disadvantages of both options. If someone has a particularly aggressive prostate cancer or an advanced prostate cancer, they're more likely to have radiation recommended, typically with hormone therapy, because their chances of cure is going to be higher in those circumstances. If someone has intermediate risk disease and they have uh, uh, no evidence of any growth outside of the prostate, many of those patients will want to proceed with surgery because they can have their, uh, you know, their, their treatment with a, a typically a one or two day stay in the hospital and uh, a little bit of a quicker recovery in many circumstances. So the, so the um, surgeries sometimes are done robotically. Is that a new technology? How long has that been around and how does that work? Is Walk us through how that would. So robotic surgery has been around actually for well over a decade okay. now. And it has, as it's been around more, has become accepted as the, as the standard. So I'd say, you know, more than 90% of the surgeries for prostate cancer in the United States are done robotically now. Uh, it is done with a, a, a patient under an anesthetic. Uh, we typically make five small incisions and are going with laparoscopic or minimally invasive uh, instruments and use a robot to remove the prostate and some of the surrounding tissues and then sew the bladder and the urethra back together. Um, As I said, typically patients are in the hospital for one to two nights afterwards. Usually it's not a very painful operation uh, and patients do have to have a catheter in their bladder for a brief period of time afterwards while while they heal from the surgery. But they typically can get, can get back to a regular activity fairly quickly. A nice thing about surgery is that it can be very, it can be curative um, in, in, in a large percentage of those cases, and patients don't need to have additional treatment thereafter. And I would imagine they continue to be preserved after. Yes, yes. We follow these uh, 
patients for many years afterwards yeah. to and monitor their 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 PSA, that same blood test after their surgery. Great. Um, so great, good information on, on prostate cancer. Appreciate all the details and stuff. Uh, let's talk about some other kind of issues you deal with, uh, like BPH. Uh, what what uh, can you tell us about that? Sure. So BPH is stands for benign prostatic hyperplasia, which means enlargement of the prostate. <clears throat> and I lump that together with lower urinary tract symptoms because you don't have to have a large prostate to have bothersome urinary symptoms. Now, it's more common in men to have a larger prostate, but lots of men with small prostates as we get older can have bothersome urinary symptoms as well. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's often sort of an embarrassing thing you know, guys don't want to come in and talk about how they have to get up and go pee three or four times at night. They don't want to talk about how their stream is weak when they stand at the urinal and there's guys next to them with a much more forceful stream. It could be, you know, an embarrassing thing to, to discuss, but it's very common. I would say, you know, the numbers are that about 50% of men at least have some deterioration in their urinary symptoms by the time they're in their 50s. And when they get into their 70s and 80s, that number is much higher, 70 to 80%. Urinary symptoms that can be bothersome are things I mentioned, like a weak urinary stream, frequency at night, uh, having to go really frequently during the day, incomplete emptying of the bladder, dribbling after urination, uh, and you know pain with urination, so on and so forth. Most of the time when, when someone comes to see us for these, these issues, we're going to uh, check a urine specimen. We'll do an ultrasound to see how well they're emptying their bladder, which is a quick procedure done in our office. We'll do a prostate exam because back to prostate cancer, prostate cancer usually doesn't have any symptoms, but lower urinary symptoms like this can be an early sign of prostate cancer. So we'll want to make sure that we evaluate for that as well. And then we, we talk about options, which can be medications. Uh, and most men do see improvement if they start medications. Uh, and if the medications aren't working, we will uh, talk about other options. This is a very exciting area, I think, in, in urology because there are some new minimally invasive treatments that we do that can actually improve men's urinary symptoms without needing to take a pill for the rest of your life. We are doing treatments where we put steam into the prostate in the office, and that can actually shrink the prostate down hmm. and improve urinary flow. We're doing a procedure uh, under anesthesia where we put stitches in the prostate to open up the prostate and allow the flow to improve. And then there's other, other surgeries we can do for it as well. But usually that's that, once again, just getting that, you know, acknowledgement of the symptoms up front and then discussing all those options uh, for men and finding out what's the best fit for them. And yeah. so is um, BPH, uh, PSAs are not elevated in that? Is that how you differentiate or is, is there more complexity to how you, you rule out prostate cancer when you're dealing with someone with, uh, with Sure. So if someone comes in to see me and they have bothersome urinary symptoms, yeah. One of the things I'm going to check is, have they had a PSA checked? Yeah. I'm going to consider prostate cancer as one of the possibilities, you know, if they're over the age of 40. And even if they're not, you know, if they're really bothered, I would look at that. Um, with that being said, most men who have bothersome urinary symptoms, 
it's not from prostate cancer. Most of the time, it's from enlargement of the prostate and related issues with their bladder that can cause these symptoms. But certainly, we always will do a prostate exam and discuss checking a PSA to make sure it's not prostate cancer before we start uh, before we start treating it. Yeah. Um, what about this uh, relating to men's health, um, testosterone and testosterone replacement therapy? Uh, we kind of hear a lot about that. Uh, you know, some men don't have enough testosterone. Mm-hmm. And so um, do they come to you typically referred from their primary care? Or how is it or how, how does that get to your practice? Sure. So uh, once again, a lot of patients will be referred to us because their primary care uh, provider has checked the testosterone level on them and it's come back low. Now, many primary care providers are very comfortable doing testosterone replacement and they'll do it, but some of them prefer to have someone with some specialization in this to contribute to the care and so it'll be referred for that. When someone comes to me with a low testosterone level, um, the first thing I'm going to ask them is, you know, what symptoms are they having? Because yeah. much like many other things in, in life, there's a spectrum of where people will, will fall. And if someone has a mildly low testosterone, but they don't have any symptoms, I may not push them towards treatment. That's a discussion we would have to have. Typically, though, the reason they have the testosterone check in the first place is because they're having symptoms. And the symptoms are things like fatigue and decreased sex drive loss of muscle mass. And these are things that can happen naturally as men get older, right, right. but in some men, it can be more of a profound event. And so if they come to me with a low testosterone, like so many other things, I'm probably going to repeat the test first, um, look and see if they need any further evaluation to find out, is there a cause for this, which we don't always find, but I think it's worth looking for. And then we'll have a long discussion about the advantages and disadvantages of testosterone replacement. Testosterone replacement can help men feel better. It can help improve their energy level and help improve their sex drive. It can sometimes help with uh, problems with erections if they're having that as well. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about the, the, the treatments. There are potential risks of testosterone replacement. And so I believe strongly that men need to be monitored closely for those yeah. while they're receiving treatment. What are some of those risks then? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then yeah. also the, the level that you measure. I know in many of the other hormones we measure, they can fluctuate pretty significantly. Is testosterone usually pretty, the range pretty consistent or is it? So testosterone does tend to decrease as men just age related. As yes, as age related, and but it also fluctuates during the day. And so most men will have their peak levels early in the morning. And so I always ask my patients to have a testosterone level drawn by 8 a.m. And I ask them to fast because there's some evidence that even eating might bring the testosterone level down. And so, and then as the day goes on, uh, the testosterone levels tend to decrease. So if you check your testosterone at 4 4 p.m., it might be low, but if it's normal at 8 a.m., you probably don't need testosterone replacement therapy. Yeah, and then going on to the- Yeah, yeah, what are some of the risks with that? So there's been a lot published in the last few years about 
concerns about increased risk of cardiovascular disease um, with testosterone uh, replacement therapy. And I think the jury is still out. There's just been some conflicting studies as to whether or not it increased a man's risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. But those are obviously things you want to be very concerned about. And that's a discussion I have with all my patients. The most common things that men can experience is an increase in their red blood cell count. And those are the blood cells that carry oxygen in the body. And if you get too many of those, they can actually get crowded in the small blood vessels and cause blood clots to form. And I've okay. seen this happen many times over my career where people have gotten a blood clot in their leg and that can be a life-threatening thing. So we will check their blood counts every six months while they're on testosterone replacement therapy. Okay. And if their blood count starts to go up too high, we'll either decrease their dose or I even have some patients that will go and get their blood drawn just to bring their counts back down to keep it safe. <laughs> uh, there have been concerns about testosterone causing an increased risk for developing prostate cancer. I don't think that's necessarily been borne out as a cause, but if a man has prostate cancer and he starts testosterone replacement therapy, it might make the cancer grow more quickly. And so we monitor men with their the PSA blood test I mentioned before while they're on testosterone as well. Very uncommonly can they have any problems with their liver, but we do mention, we, excuse me, we do recommend monitoring their liver function as well. Do you yeah. adjust the, I know you mentioned adjusting the dose based on red blood cell count. You also adjust it based on symptoms or what, what parameters do you use to make the dose? Correct? Sure. So there's, uh, what I'll typically do is see what their starting level of testosterone is and then make a determination as to how to start them with treatment. And treatment can either be with uh, topical gels that they rub on their skin, or it can be with injections, or there can be actually uh, little uh, pellets that we can put underneath the skin that will be absorbed over time. <laughs> so that's usually not something we would start with, but yeah. we would start with the gels or the shots up front. And then we will monitor, one, how they feel, and two, what their testosterone level is. And so if they're feeling great and their testosterone only comes up a little bit, I'm not going to put them on a higher dose. If they're not feeling great and their testosterone level is low, then we might bring them up to a higher dose and adjust it accordingly. How about uh, the absorption of the testosterone on the topical? I know in some of the other hormones, it's, it, some absorb really well and very predictably. Others don't. How is testosterone on that spectrum? Uh, yeah, I, I would agree that it, you get very mixed results yeah. there. Uh, I have some patients that, that swear by it and yeah. others just don't feel like they get the same benefit as they do with an injection. <laughs> In all honesty, I have more patients with injections than the topicals yeah. for that reason. What are some other um, cancers or conditions out there related specifically to men? So another condition that I see very frequently is erectile dysfunction. Okay. And that's obviously one of those things that men have challenges discussing. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I think it's easier to discuss now than it was 20 years ago. And because you see so many commercials on television and advertisements for the medications and treatments. But once a, I, I think there's value into having a discussion with a urologist about this because we're very well versed on all the different treatment options. Most men that are going to come in and have issues with erectile dysfunction, we're not just going to 
look at that problem, but we try to look at the, the whole person and see if there's any other uh, concerns that be, could be contributing to this. A very important thing to consider is that erectile dysfunction or difficulties with erections has been identified as a risk factor for developing heart disease. And so if a man in his 40s is having difficulties with erections, that could mean he has a higher risk of having a heart attack in his 50s or 60s. So I will want to look at their blood pressure and their cholesterol and have they had a a cardiac stress test, things that you may not think about otherwise. Um, Once we've looked at those and lifestyle things like, are they exercising? Are they overweight? Then we can talk about medical treatments, which are the medications that most people are familiar with, Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, and Stendra. And if those aren't effective, we have a number of other options that we can offer men uh, that would not typically be offered by their, their primary care doctors who don't have the expertise. Yeah. What age does that typically manifest um, ED? So uh, men in their 40s to 50s are, are often already starting to manifest some early symptoms of erectile dysfunction. And so up to 40% of men in their 40s already might see a little bit of decrease in their function. By, and then it goes up by about 10% every decade. So you know, by the time you're in your 60s, about 60% of men are having difficulties with their erections. Are there things that put um, men at a higher risk for that? like smoking or anything else? Sure. I think any of the factors that can increase your risk of, of heart disease can also uh, increase your risk of erectile dysfunction. Uh, men that are smokers, men that have poorly controlled blood pressure, um, diabetes, obesity, all of those can increase a man's uh, risk of developing erectile dysfunction. And uh, men that are active, I keep preaching about being active, but the, the, the science backs it up. Men that are active are less likely to have problems with erectile dysfunction than the men that are not active. And actually in men that are active who need medication. So if a, a, a man needs Viagra for his erections and he's active, he is going to do far better than someone who's on Viagra who's not active. So another little plug for saying physically active. You know. <laughs> what about testicular cancer? Is that something that you see in your practice? Yes. Yeah, so testicular cancer is not nearly as common as, as uh, prostate cancer or some of the other cancers that we see, but it is one of the more common cancers in young men. And typically you're going to see testicular cancer in men between the ages of 15 and 35, although it does occur in, in older men uh, on a less common rate. Um, typically it presents with just a painless lump or bump on the testicle. And so I tell men just to be familiar with themselves. Like we tell women to do self-breast exams. I recommend to young men that they do self-testicular exams every month or so to see if they feel anything abnormal. And obviously if they do to get evaluated by a, by a physician. How do you diagnose it? So uh, testicular cancer uh, can be typically diagnosed by an exam by a urologist, but we will um, always get an ultrasound as well. And the ultrasound will typically show typical characteristics we will then do blood tests and usually a CT scan um, before proceeding with with uh, with treatment. Is there medical treatment for that chemotherapy, or is it just surgery? 
So with testicular cancer, the first step um, uh, is to remove that testicle. Mm -hmm. And then based on what we find when the pathologists look at the testicle under a microscope and also looking at those blood tests that I mentioned, the tumor markers Mm -hmm. and the CT scan, we then make a determination as to whether or not uh, a young man needs further treatment with chemotherapy, radiation therapy, more surgery, or, or in many cases, continued close observation. Yeah. Uh, some other conditions that I'm sure you deal with a lot. Uh, so kidney stones, uh, other urologic conditions, what, what other things come to your mind as far as important things to be aware of or that you treat on a regular basis? Um, so other things that men can deal with. So yeah, yeah kidney stones obviously affect yeah. both men and women. They're, Men have more kidney stones. I think it's about twice as common in men as it is in women. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a very common problem. And, yeah. Why? Uh, do you know why that is? Uh, it's not known. Yeah. yeah. And women are tending to get them more often. It seems hmm. like they're kind of catching up. Um, <laughs> All right. Um, not something you want to catch, catch up, up in. Yeah, it's not something you want to catch up in. And then if men get kidney stones, they're more likely to get recurrent kidney stones than women do. Women are more likely to get one stone and not have one again for many years. And men tend to be you know, more frequently recurrent formers. Um, but, you know, I mean, so kidney stones are, you know, when we talk about things that we do frequently in urology, um, you know, prostate issues like we've talked about is, is uh, probably the most common and kidney stones are the number two or, or a tie for number one. So that's something that can cause significant pain and, you know, inability to, to work because of severity of the pain. Women say it's, as bad as childbirth. So which you know all about, uh, so it can be, it's, you know, as a urologist, it's one of the more rewarding things we could do is someone comes in in severe pain and you can do something to help them with that and make them feel better. Hopefully very quickly. Um, that's a, that's a common thing we, we deal with other things that we deal with that are specific to men's health. Uh, I see men with Peyronie's disease very frequently. That's a, uh, a condition where a man can have, uh, abnormal curvature of the penis and it can affect his ability to have normal erections. It's a very, it's a more common condition than people know. Uh, it can be a challenging condition to treat because there's not always the, a, a set in stone guaranteed uh, treatment that will work, but we help men with a number of modalities to treat that. We help men with fertility issues as well. Uh, and, and, and those are a lot of the you know things that we deal that are specific, I think, to to, to men. Oh, yeah, well, um, maybe as women, we don't give men enough credit for all the things <laughs> they go through. <laughs> I really appreciate the, uh, the thoroughness of, uh, of the topic of review, and I think you gave us some great insight. We really appreciate you coming on. Great. Well, thank you both so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for um, providing awareness for all these, these topics for men. So thank you. You've been listening to the Healthcare Podcast with Dr. K and Lindsay. Join us again for our next episode as we work toward increasing understanding and transparency in healthcare. care.